Hey everybody, it's Mark. Welcome or welcome back to the New Spring Church Podcast. Hey, at the end of this episode, please take a moment to subscribe to our YouTube channel and download our free New Spring app where you can access all of our recent message content. Actually, the app is the easiest way to share all this content with a friend, and it's the easiest way to keep up with everything going on around here at New Spring. But most importantly, I hope the following presentation inspires you to take your next step in your faith journey. Enjoy. Okay, now I know this is a weird way to start off a message or to start off a series, but play along with me. I, I want to ask you if you know what something is. If you really know what it is, you raise your hand. If you, if you don't know, then don't raise your hand. So, so you've got to really know what this is. If you really know what polypropylene is, raise your hand across the room. All right. And there are a couple of you very enthusiastically knowing what polypropylene is. You're very excited about it, right, which is great. Um, I would say 90% of the room, maybe even a little bit more, um, you're not sure what polypropylene is, and yet I would guess that you've probably encountered polypropylene today, you've probably used it, and you probably needed it to do what you needed to do before you got to church today, right? Um, so an example of polypropylene, I have one here with me, I, I, I had to go buy it because I don't have any personal use for it anymore, is a comb, right? Um, well, you know, as you can tell... Brings back some fond memories, though. Um, but you know how you would get one of these combs, and it would say unbreakable on it, right? And the reason it would say unbreakable is because it's made of polypropylene. You can, you can bend it, you can flex it, but it always pops back up to the normal shape. You can put all kinds of stress on it, but it still functions as it was designed to function. Actually, what we could say is that because it's made of this incredible material, that it functions optimally under suboptimal conditions, right? That's what makes it kind of cool, right? That you don't have to worry about something going wrong with this comb. Chances are, unless you're one of those YouTubers whose mission in life is to prove that you can break an unbreakable comb, and if that's you, you know, you know who you are. Um, but unless that's the case, chances are you could pass this comb down to your great-great-grandchildren because not much is gonna mess with it. It's gonna work for a very long time, right? Um, ladies, you probably encountered polypropylene this morning as you were getting ready for church. Probably um, some of the toiletries that you have in your bathroom, you went to some product and you popped it open and you didn't even think about it, but the lid that you popped open is a one-piece lid and that is cool is one piece of plastic and yet it opens and closes. You could put it under all kinds of stress and yet it doesn't break. As a matter of fact, these lids are rated for over 4,000 openings and closings before they break, right? That is really cool. It functions optimally under suboptimal conditions. You're stressing it out by opening and closing it and yet it continues to work. When I was getting ready to, to speak 
um, and I was sort of doing my sermon prep, I, I grabbed an old series that I had done that was on a similar topic. I wanted to watch one of the videos and just kind of go over some of that material again. And as I opened the DVD disc case to get out the disc to watch the video, I realized that I had in my hand polypropylene. This case, because it opens and closes and snaps, and you can open it over and over again, it continues to work and function. And the little spindle that you put the disc on, you press it down, it bounces back up, right? It's polypropylene. It is built to function optimally under suboptimal conditions. Now, the reason I'm starting off with this, and you pretty much guessed it at this point, is I want that quality in my life. I want to function optimally under suboptimal conditions. When life puts stress on me, I want to bounce back. I want to be able to recover from the stress and the pressure that life puts on me. And I recognize that that's not something that you just do naturally. It's not something that we do normally. And, and even if I'm a strong person, I may really struggle with this. You know, the inventors of polypropylene won a Nobel Prize. That's a pretty big prize for an industrial product like this particular kind of plastic. But the reason that they won the Nobel Prize is because nobody had made something before that was so strong and yet so flexible. Strong we had. Strong was old news. We'd had strong stuff for a long time. But to add flexibility to strength, well, that was a whole other deal. As a culture, we're pretty obsessed with strength. We want to be known as a strong person. He's a strong man. He's a strong woman, right? Nothing wrong with that. But being strong doesn't guarantee you'll be successful. Because I know a lot of people who have strong personalities that still break down when stress becomes part of the equation. To be strong, you have to be, to, to, to be successful, you have to be strong and flexible. As a matter of fact, I would say the reason that these guys won the Nobel Prize is that if you can figure out a way to add flexibility to strength, you'll change the world. If you can figure out a way to flex and not break under pressure, well, that changes the world. Now, this is the chemical formula for polypropylene. I just want to go through it with you really quickly and explain the, the, the way that it's formed. No, I'm not going to do that. I don't understand that at all. But just as there's a formula for polypropylene, what I wanted to do in this first talk is I wanted to try to come up with a formula for flexibility. And in this series, when we're talking about flexibility, we're talking about the capacity or the ability to bend and not break when life isn't fair. Because this is true. And I don't have to make a sales pitch for this. I don't have to come up with some brilliant way of, of, of convincing you that life isn't fair, right? That you came in knowing. That's old news to you. You understand that throughout your life, you're going to consistently have stress. You're going to consistently have pressure. And a lot of the time, it's not going to be stress or pressure you created for yourself. A lot of the time, it's going to be unfair. And yet, the people in the world that are really, really successful are people that somehow bounce back. And that's what we're talking about in this series. Four weeks of talking about how to bounce back when life isn't fair. And here's the cool part. If you stay with us for all four weeks, we're going to be focusing on one Bible character. So we're not going to be hopping around a lot. We're going to be talking about one character in the Bible and what we can learn about flexibility from him. Now, I had carte blanche. I was allowed to pick any Bible character that I wanted, and I could have picked Jesus because Jesus certainly taught us about flexibility. That's for sure. But we're going to be talking about Jesus in a series coming up pretty soon uh, called The Jesus Questions. So uh, instead, I decided to pick a character from the Old Testament. And if Jesus is out of the running, the, the one person in Scripture that I think belongs at the head of the roster for flexible characters in the Bible is a guy named Joseph. 
very early on in the Bible, in the book of Genesis. More text is given to the story of Joseph than most other Bible characters. There's a lot of story here. Now, I know that if you're coming in today, maybe you're new to church, you're maybe new to the Bible, that there's a potential, there's a possibility that you're not familiar with this Bible character, and I'm going to try to get you caught up. Now, I will tell you this. Um, I would really encourage you, if you're going to be here with us for the series, uh, and, and you want to really get the, all of it that you can out, I would encourage you to, to, to get the book of Genesis out and read the whole story of Joseph, because I'm going to have to skip over a lot of really good stuff just to kind of get you caught up. But this is the cliff notes on Joseph's life. First thing you need to know about Joseph is he was born in a, in, into a tremendously dysfunctional family, right? And some of you, you, you're in dysfunctional families and you totally get it. He was born into a family with one dad and four mamas. Now that spells trouble. And every once in a while somebody comes up to me and says, now Jonathan, I noticed that in the scripture, you know, sometimes uh, a guy's married to more than one, uh, more than one woman and uh, what's up with that? Well, I'll tell you what's up with that. Read through your Bible. It never works to have a marriage with more than two people. Never works for anybody. Everybody loses, right? So, um, but regardless, uh, here's what happens. Jacob, who is Joseph's dad, as a young man, he meets this woman that blows his mental circuits. I mean, he meets her and he is like, I'm going to marry that woman. She's gorgeous. She's beautiful. And he just loves to be around her. So he goes to her dad. Her name's Rachel, by the way. He goes to her dad and says, I want to marry Rachel. And, and he says, well, what are you going to give me to marry my daughter? And he said, well, I'll work for you for seven years. I'll, I'll, I'll work for you for free. You don't have to pay me. I'm going to work for you for seven years so that I can deserve to marry your daughter. And so that was the deal. How many of you guys would have done this for your spouse to work seven years before you can get married for no wages just to marry this woman? That tells you what kind of love he had for her. But see... The dad of Rachel was a sneaky dude, and he didn't want to marry off his youngest daughter first. He wanted to marry off his oldest daughter, and he recognized that marrying off Rachel was not going to be a problem. Marrying Leah off was going to be a little bit of a problem, right? So Rachel's name means beautiful lamb. Leah, the older sister, her name means tired cow. <laughs> Thanks, mom and dad, right? You might surmise from that that Leah was not as attractive as her sister, but you don't have to predict. The Bible's very clear. The Bible says Rachel was beautiful and Leah was a little challenged in that area, right? And so when it came time for the wedding, uh, at the very end of the celebration, uh, uh, Leah and Rachel's dad, he slips the older daughter in so that Jacob accidentally ends up marrying the older sister, right? Which was... So aggravating to Jacob, you cannot imagine. He's been around Leah for seven years. He has no interest in Leah at all. There's no connection. There's, there's, there is no uh, desire to spend the rest of his life with this woman. Suddenly, he is stuck with her. And he goes to her dad and says, you tricked me. And the dad says, look, I, I, I totally get that this probably wasn't completely fair. I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll let you marry Rachel right now if you'll give me seven more years of work. You work for me for seven more years, but, but you can marry Rachel now. So this is how it works. Jacob is now married to Rachel, the woman that he loves more than anything, and Leah, a woman that he has no love for and is stuck with. Now that's a love triangle that spells trouble to start with, but it gets worse because Rachel and Leah then end up in a baby having contest, right? 
So you should know that at that time, and this was total, this was never a God thing, this was a cultural thing, and it was wrong from the start, but there was a cultural idea that it, the, the number of kids a woman could have was somehow a sign of her self-worth. And if, if a woman couldn't have kids at all, then that was a really negative sign about her self-worth. So keep this in mind. You've got Leah who's unloved but starts having babies. One, two, three, four sons that she's presenting to Uh, to Jacob. And she keeps naming these kids after the hope that she has that by having kids, Jacob will love her now. It's really kind of sad if you think about it. So now, meanwhile, Rachel can't have any kids. And Rachel is getting more and more frustrated. And the fact that there is this tension between her and her sister doesn't make it any better. And she feels taunted and embarrassed and ashamed. And so she decides, well, she's not going to have any kids. So she's got to find a way to put some points up on the scoreboard, try to even things out. So she goes to Jacob and says, look, I want you to sleep with my maid and have some children with her. Then I'll raise them as my children. And I won't be embarrassed and ashamed. And because Jacob was such a moron, he went along with the plan. And so Jacob starts to have kids with Rachel's maid. Now, Um, Meanwhile, Leah starts to realize she's not getting pregnant again. She thinks she's done having babies. She's had four sons. She thinks she's done. And so she realizes that if the trend continues, she's going to lose. And she cannot lose the kid having contest when she already has a husband that doesn't even love her. So she says to Jacob, now I want you to sleep with my maid so that I can keep putting points up on the scoreboard. So Jacob starts sleeping with her maid, starts having babies with her. Meanwhile, Leah suddenly gets pregnant again. And Leah figures out she's going to have some more babies, right? So that's three women in Jacob's life that are having babies and a lot of sons. And suddenly, surprisingly, no one expected this, Rachel gets pregnant. And Rachel, the person that Jacob loves more than anybody on the face of the earth, the the person that Jacob would have done anything to be married to, Rachel finally comes and delivers that little baby boy into his arms. And that's that moment where for Jacob, he said, this kid, is different than all the rest. I'm gonna love on this kid the way I've never loved on any kid before. I'm gonna give this kid every opportunity. I'm gonna make sure that this kid, that this, this kid and me have a bond that's unlike any other kid that I've ever had. And at that moment, Joseph's life was set up to be unfair. For the rest of his life, his life was set up to be unfair. Some of you, you know what it's like to have parents play favorites, just as Joseph's parents did. And you know, some of you, you were the favorite kid and you understood that that made life unfair for you. Because as soon as your parents left the room, you had the hatred of your siblings. You understood that being the teacher's pet was not exactly what you wanted in life or what you bargained for. And that's exactly what Joseph's entire existence was like. He had a ton of older brothers and they all hated his guts. Beyond all this, his dad made it worse. The, the, the boys in the family had been through the same procedure, the same process. You know, you get older, eventually you'd get old enough that they would send you out to the field because the family, their family business was shepherding. So they would send the boys out in the field and they would have to work their way up through the ranks and eventually they would sort of be in charge. But it was a hard life and it was hard to prove yourself and eventually be one of the head guys out there in the shepherding operation. And so they assume someday dad's going to send Joseph out here and we'll teach him then what's what. Wait till we put him through the the training program. Wait till we bust him down a few pegs and teach him what it's really like to be out in the real world. So they wait for him to get old enough for dad to send him out. Joseph's 17. He finally shows up out there. But the problem is not necessarily Joseph's demeanor showing out in the field. It is the way that Joseph is dressed because Joseph shows up in a coat that his dad gave him. Now we're not completely clear 
Bible scholars are not clear whether it was a coat of many colors or whether it was just a long coat. But regardless, it meant the same thing. Whether it was a coat of many colors or it was a long coat, it meant that Joseph was management and not labor. So he sent his 17-year-old son out to a group of 20-something, 30-something-year-old brothers who've all had to earn their dues, and probably more than that because their dad didn't have any use for them. They probably had to work really hard to earn their dues. Suddenly their little brother, who they don't have any use for, shows up in their operation with a big name badge that says general manager. You want to talk about being set up for a problem. Not only that, but Joseph's brothers were kind of a mess. So when Joseph would show up, he would see things that they were doing that were clearly to him things that his dad would not be okay with. So then he would go back and he would tell his dad what his brothers were doing and that infuriated them. They'd had it up to here with Joseph. And then there was the straw that broke the camel's back because Joseph started having dreams. Well, at that time, God did communicate some important things to people through dreams. But beyond that, in the culture, it was believed that dreams predicted the future. And it was clear to his brothers and his family that the symbolism in his dreams was that someday his entire family would bow down to him. So get this in your mind. 17-year-old, coming out into the operation, general manager, that isn't fair. On top of that, he's coming out here with this fancy coat that dad's given him. On top of that, he keeps coming out here telling us about these dreams and saying, someday all y'all gonna bow down to me. And they'd had it. And they're like, all right, we're done. We're done with this guy. They started calling him names. They started calling him the dreamer. And they would ratchet each other up. You know how it is when people coalesce around anger? They ratchet each other up. And they had gotten themselves worked into such a place about Joseph, they decided they were done with him. They had to find a way to get rid of him. So one day Joseph's coming out to check on them. And they see him coming and they say, you know what? We got to get rid of this kid. What we need to do is we just need to kill him. And we'll, we'll dump them in this well. Now, the thing about the wells, the wells were there so that during the rainy season, they would catch the water. And that for at least during the dry season, as long as the water could stay there, they would use it. But eventually during the dry season, it would dry out and just be an empty well, be sitting there doing nothing. And they were by one of these wells and they said, we're going to kill him. We're going to throw him in the well so nobody will find him. And then we'll go tell dad some sort of story and we'll be done with this and life can get back to normal. Then they, they kept discussing it. They said, no, wait a minute. That, that, might, not be as, as, that, might, that might, might not be the best plan. Because then one of us would be explicitly guilty of killing our brother. That's probably not good. What we should do is we should put him in that well, and he'll die of thirst. Now, he will die, but none of us will have explicitly murdered him, right? So that was plan B, and that's what they started off to do. They put Joseph in the well. They figure he's going to end up dying of thirst. They're already trying to figure up a plan to tell uh, Jacob. Joseph is yelling to let him out, but they're not going to let him out because they've had enough of this kid. Meanwhile, a couple of their second cousins come through on this slave train that's headed to Egypt. Some of their family members, sort of extended family members, were slave traders. And they thought, you know what, even better, plan C. None of us kills Joseph explicitly or implicitly. We're not going to make him die of thirst. We're going to haul him up out of this well. We're going to sell him to these slave traders. He stays alive. We'll, we'll make believe that he died so we can, get, you know, we can have everything squared away with dad. But this way we make some spending money on the deal. I want you to pause for a second and do me a favor. I want you to think about what it's got to be like to be Joseph. In the course of potentially an hour, two hours, you go from the favored son 
the person who could do no wrong in the eyes of your father, the person who was probably going to inherit the operation. I mean, by the rules at the time, it would have been hard for Jacob to do it, but I think any of us looking at the story believes that Jacob was gonna find some way to funnel his operation toward Joseph. I mean, all of this was working for him, and within an hour to two hour space, he's being led off in chains in an Egyptian slave train. He is now considered to be basically human trash, that the, lowest, that the highest bidder will win and own. He's going to Egypt, which is a place he's never been, where they speak a language he's never spoken, where there are traditions he knows nothing about. And he is basically now the most worthless piece of garbage that you can imagine after being the prized son just, just a few moments ago. You want to talk about unfair. There's nothing right about this. Nothing right. And nothing that Joseph had done to deserve it. So if anybody ever had a right to go offline, to shut down, to get bitter, to determine that I'm done, I'm totally done with this, it was Joseph. But I want you to watch what the Bible says happens to Joseph. Now this is in Genesis 39. The Bible says, Joseph was brought down to Egypt. Potiphar, an officer of the Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph. And that was a, that's a theme that we're gonna come back to a lot in these four weeks. But I want you to watch the contrast here. He became a successful man. Where did he become a successful man? He became a successful man in the house of his Egyptian master. Do you see? It's interesting. That is optimal performance in a suboptimal environment. He became a successful man, but not where you would expect him to become successful. If he had stayed in his father's house... If he had continued to be the prized son, you would expect him to be successful. But once he's in Potiphar's house, you don't expect that. It's a surprise. And yet the Bible tells us that's exactly what happened. He became successful in the house of his Egyptian master. Now we're working towards something, but in order to work toward it, I have to ask you a really gut level question. It's not for you to answer to me, it's for you to answer to you. And I need you to be honest with yourself. The question is simply this. How much unfairness can you take before you break? How much unfairness? I'm not asking how strong you are, I'm asking how flexible you are. How much unfairness can you take before you break? Now, I will tell you this, in my time at New Spring, I've had the privilege of doing a few series by myself. I almost always do a series on what I think I need to learn because I figure if I'm gonna spend a month studying something, uh, I, I want it to be something that, that's gonna help an area where I need to develop, and this is an area where I need to develop. I have a, a strong sense of, of justice, and I feel like if I am doing what I'm supposed to do, I should get what I'm supposed to get, and when I don't, it can cause trouble for me. Four-way stops. <laughs> Is there something that I don't know about in Kansas that says that we've reversed the order of who goes at a four-way stop? <laughs> my daughter in the car and, you know, I'm, I'm taking her to school. I pull up to the, to the stop. I'm the first person. And then there's the second person. The third person stops. The four, oh, there goes the fourth person. They're going right through the intersection. Well, they weren't paying attention, you know, but I'm assuming the rest of us were. All of a sudden the third person goes and I'm like, somebody reversed the order. Happens all the time. So now I'm griping, not at my daughter, but to my daughter about the way people drive in Kansas. I'm spending a good portion of the drive to school griping about how people don't know. I mean, it, it is frustrating, but I've ruined an opportunity to spend time with my daughter because I've broken because of something as simply unfair as who stops when at a four-way stop. Have you ever gone to one of those pop machines, you put your dollar in, you press the button, you don't get a pop? 
My problem, I'm going to be just real transparent and honest with you. My problem is I treat life like a pop machine a lot. I figure if I put my dollar in and I press the right button, I should get what I'm supposed to get. If I do what I'm supposed to do at work, I should get what I'm supposed to get. If I do what I'm supposed to do at marriage, I should get what I'm supposed to get. If I do what, I, if I do what I'm supposed to do in this project, then I should get what I'm supposed to get from everybody else in the team. And what will happen is if I don't get what I think I'm supposed to be getting, I'll start to have a little breakdown. Now, there are three stages of these breakdowns. Now, maybe you've experienced it, but I know I have, and I just want to walk you through really quickly. When I talk about how much unfairness can you take before you break, when I say break, this is what I mean. The three stages are this. First is distraction, the second is absorption, and the third is derailment. And this happened to me a few years ago. My wife and I took a trip to San Antonio. It was just a getaway trip for us as a couple. We thought we'd spend some time together. We got this killer deal in a hotel room right there on the Riverwalk. How many of y'all been to the Riverwalk? So you know what I'm saying. Most of you have. You know what I'm saying. If you go at the right time of year, it's absolutely gorgeous. And we had a blast. We did all kinds of fun stuff. We did the little Segway tours. We go up and down the river, walk on the Segways. And, and uh, you know, we visited the Alamo. And just we had a really great time. The last night we were there, we decided we were going to dress up, have a nice dinner. We kind of had a date night planned. And uh, so, you know, I told Wendy, I said, well, there's this really, really amazing steakhouse here. And I've heard about it for years. And uh, I've never been to it. I've never been to a place where they, where, I've never been to a city where they had one. And so I'd really like to go there. And, and Wendy's not as big of a steakhouse person as I am, but she was game. She said, yeah, let's go. So I call and I make a reservation because I figure it's going to be very busy. I get our names on the list. And Wendy and I dress up and we go out, you know, to, to dinner and we, we go to this restaurant. And they, you know, I'd say, uh, Hoover, a reservation for two. And, and they get the little thing that they, you know, vibrate to let you know that your table's ready. We go sit down and we start to have a conversation. And I notice nobody else is waiting. It's just us. And so I figure we're going to be, they're going to seat us just any old time real soon, you know. And, but we're waiting and waiting and waiting, starting to bother me. Suddenly, a bunch of people come in. You know how it is when you say to yourself or you say to your spouse, we came at the right time, right? I was telling Wendy, we obviously came at the right time because there's like a truckload of people coming in. And I'm thinking, I'm looking at them, I'm thinking, slackers, you know. Came after us, didn't make a reservation. That's what you get, you know, until the slackers started getting seated before us. And I started to get really upset. I mean, some time was passing. They were seating people. And suddenly I'm starting to, you know, Wendy's trying to have a conversation with me. In the middle of the conversation, I know we were there before they were, you know. I go up to the hostess stand to say something. But I remember, as I do when I travel, that new springers are everywhere. So I think I better remain my composure. I better continue to be pastor-like. So I, I'm, trying to, I'm trying to think about the joy of my salvation. I'm praising God in the storm. I'll praise you in this storm, you know, um, about the table. And I'm thinking, I'm just going to try to really approach this in a, in a nice way. And I go up and I talk to the lady and she says, no, no, you're on the list. We're just, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll get you seated. Just hang on. Yeah, I'm, sure you're, you'll, I'm sure it'll be very soon. So we sit down and yet again, they keep seating people before us. Another 20 minutes passes and I have had it. At this point, my agitation has eclipsed my spirituality. <laughs> so I get up there and I have a very direct conversation with the person at the hostess. Uh, counter and the manager comes out and says, Mr. Hoover, uh, there was some sort of confusion with your reservation. You haven't actually been on the list, but we're going to seat you as quickly as we possibly can. So I'm very upset at this point. So they, they seat us quickly. And in order to do that, they seat us at a table right by the kitchen. The, the wait staff is bumping my chair every time they come in and out of the kitchen. This is not the fine dining experience that I thought we were going to have at this restaurant. 
And I order, and we had to order pretty fast because we had plants. I order a medium well steak and a Coke, and some of you think I'm crazy for ordering a steak medium well, but I did. They bring me out a piece of beef that is so rare, a skilled veterinarian probably could have revived it, you know? (laughs) And they brought me a diet soda, which is the devil's own soft drink. And I'm getting, I'm getting more and more upset. And at that table where we're supposed to be having a wonderful date night, my mind is somewhere else. That's why I'm talking about being distracted. Distraction is losing track of your purpose. See, the purpose of that night was for Wendy and I to connect. The purpose of that night was for us to have a really meaningful time together. But from the moment they started seating people ahead of us, I completely lost track of what that night was about. And suddenly the night was about this problem talking to somebody in this room, you work in customer service. When you started out in customer service, you were great at what you did because you understood the purpose was to make your customers' lives better. And you did a great job at it. But then you started to experience unfairness at work and suddenly you forgot what the job was about. And now you're just a so-so employee, but you don't have to be a so-so employee. The reason you're a so-so employee is not because you don't have potential, it's because you've lost track of what was important. Some of us were parents, and you knew when you held that baby in your arms in the hospital on day one, you knew what the purpose, that God had called you to to be a blessing in this kid's life and to help train them as they grow up to become a wonderful adult, and that that was really much ingrained in in, in your mind in that moment, but you went through some, some seasons of parenting where it just didn't feel like life was fair, and suddenly you lost track of your purpose, and you're not even really sure what you're doing or why you're doing it anymore. When I say, how much unfairness can you take before you break? I'm asking how much unfairness can you take before you're so distracted that you've forgotten why you do what you do and why it's important. But it doesn't just stop at distraction, then it goes to absorption. And the only way I know how to describe absorption is losing touch with reality. It's like everything around you starts to melt away and all you can see is the unfairness. Wendy and I are done with dinner, we're walking up and down the river walk. Wendy says to me, do you remember when we were dating, you know, And we would go, we would walk around Bradley Fair, the little sidewalk around the lake, and we would just talk about all kinds of things. It was just such a special time. Yeah. Do you think if I wrote the owner of that restaurant a letter? (laughs) You think that would be appropriate? You think they would change something if, if we did, you know, the whole night, it's like, that's all I could see. We're, you know, I mean, we're in this beautiful location. Spending time, just the two of us, but the only reality in Jonathan's head is back at that steakhouse where things didn't go my way. That's being absorbed. But then the final step is being derailed, which is losing your temper or your identity. See, if you, if you obsess on unfairness long enough, you will eventually lose it. You'll lose your temper. I mean, I, you know, I was, I was looking at cases of this the last week as I was preparing for this talk. People that hurt people they didn't intend to hurt, people that ended up making headlines on the news because they totally lost it, they lost their cool, not because that's the kind of person that they are. They lost their cool because they were obsessed with unfairness and eventually it just blew up on them. Or people that lose their identity. There are some of us that if you were to look at our Facebook record, You wouldn't learn about who we are. You would learn about what we think is unfair. Because that's all we ever really get involved with. We get involved with what we think is unfair. Life becomes a cause. And our cause is to educate people about where they're wrong. And some of us believe that is a God 
calling. We think that's our spiritual gift, is to educate people on social media about what they're wrong about. Let me set you free in the name of Jesus Christ from that. That's not your job. I just cleared up some hours of available time for some of y'all. Don't lose your identity. Don't, don't let you become about something that's wrong in the first place. We should be beacons of what's right, not obsessed and connected and, and absorbed by what's wrong. The Lord was with Joseph, the Bible says, and he became a successful man and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. Again, look at the juxtaposition. Where did he become an optimal performer? He became an optimal performer in a suboptimal situation. So the point that I'm trying to make here is if you need an optimal situation to become successful, you'll probably never get there. If you need an optimal situation to become successful, it probably ain't gonna happen. And some of us are waiting for that. There are people in this room, there are things you need to do to be successful. You could tell me. You could give me a list of the things that you need to, be, to do to be successful. And I ask you, are you doing these things? And you say, no. And I'd say, why aren't you doing these things? And you say, well, this has to change first and this has to change first. And we need the platform to be right. We need all the planets to align. We need things to be just so, so that we can then do what we need to do to be successful. We need the situation to be optimal. The word entitlement bounces around a lot and it's sort of become a criticism People are entitled. But you know, entitlement is just the, the belief that the world needs to be optimal for me to be successful. It's the belief that everything should be fair in order for me to be successful. But fair ended in the Garden of Eden. When sin came into this world, our world went from being an optimal situation to being a suboptimal situation. So no matter who you are in this room, and no matter what you've got going on, I promise you wake up every morning in a suboptimal situation, and that ain't gonna change. See, Joseph understood that whether he was the favored son back home or whether he was in the house of Potiphar, the Egyptian, he was waking up in a suboptimal situation. And so his MO in life would have been the same whether he was back in Israel or whether he was in Egypt. He was going to get up and do the best he could with the suboptimal situation he had. And he was going to consider it normal. Told you I was going to give you a formula for flexibility. The first part of the formula is you got to anticipate challenge. You got to know that it's normal. I'm blown away by the couples that come to see me. I do couples coaching. I'm blown away sometimes by the couples that'll come to see me after a couple months of marriage. I'm thrilled they're coming in to see me because a lot of couples wait a long time before they'll get any help. But what's, what's interesting to me is they'll come in and they're blown away at how imperfect their spouse is. Because before they got married, they had a very different impression of how things were gonna go, right? And they come in and she says, but he leaves his dirty socks on the floor, you know, and, and I want to go out and he's sitting there on the lazy boy watching TV with potato chips all over his lap. And he says, well, you should see her at night when she goes to bed. I mean, she's got this green cream goop stuff all over her face. I woke up and almost had a heart attack. <laughs> Thought I was being attacked in bed by a monster, you know. And you know what my job is to tell them? Yeah, that's normal. That's normal. Anticipate challenge. It's not going to be, getting married, let, let me tell you something. I, I spend a lot of time telling my pre-married couples that being single is easier than being married. And, not, and, and being a couple who doesn't have kids is a lot easier than being a couple who does have kids. That some of the things that we fight for the hardest in life are things that are going to make our situation even less optimal than it is right now. But the thing about it is, that doesn't mean that you've done something wrong by getting married or you've done something wrong by having kids. It means that you should anticipate the challenge and know that you're going to be in a suboptimal situation. And if you want to be successful, you're going to have to find a way to have optimal performance in a suboptimal situation. And the first part of the formula is to know, hey, this is normal. <laughs> 
This is normal. The Bible says this. Paul, Paul says this in 2 Corinthians. He says, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Now, jars of clay here, um, and we talked about this in a previous message, that people would often take some very utilitarian clay pots. Sometimes they were cracked, ugly clay pots that were more like the cardboard boxes of the ancient world. And they would hide their jewelry in it because they didn't think any thieves would ever look. It's, it, it would be like if you had a cardboard box in your house and you put your, your diamonds and your pearls in the cardboard box because you think if a thief breaks in, that's the last place that they're going to look. But more than that, what we're talking about here is that in imperfect and suboptimal containers, there is an optimal chance for performance because within a person as suboptimal as Jonathan Hoover, and I'm suboptimal in a lot of ways, I have the Holy Spirit of the living God, which then produces an optimal product out of a suboptimal person. But it's not just about people. It's about situations. The power of God can produce optimal performance in a suboptimal workplace, in a suboptimal marriage, in a suboptimal parenting relationship. As a matter of fact, God likes to do this. Check this out. Why does God do this? To show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. God likes to do this because he knows that when optimal performance comes out of a suboptimal person, comes out of a suboptimal situation, everybody looks at it and knows where it came from. When amazing success comes out of a suboptimal situation, you've got to admit God must have been the one who did that. When amazing success comes out of a suboptimal relationship, you got to stand back and go, that must have been God. Because it certainly wasn't, the dominoes weren't set up to fall that way. So some of us, we are praying for that optimal situation. And God's saying, actually, I want to surprise people with what can happen in the suboptimal situation that you're in. Say, but Jonathan, I'm in a rough job. What if God wants to surprise everybody around you with how successful you become in the suboptimal job that you're in. Well, right now our family life isn't very great, but what if God wants to surprise people with the amazing success that comes out of a family situation that's suboptimal? That's his, that's his MO, that's what he likes to do. Okay, so I'm gonna move to part two of the formula. Part, part one was to anticipate the challenge. I'm gonna move to part two of the formula, but in order to do that, I need to ask you a very important question. I want you to think about the unfair situation that's going on in your life. Many of you have lots and lots, but pick one. Pick an unfair situation that's going on in your life and ask yourself the question, are you working or wishing? Are you working within your unfair situation or are you wishing your way out? Because a lot of us spend our energy wishing out of the situation that we're in rather than working within the situation that we're in. I mean, think about all the things that Joseph could have wished. He could have wished that his brothers weren't jerks. He could have wished that one of his brothers would have had a moment of conscience and gone to the father and said, we did something wrong and explain it. So that, I mean, here's the deal. For 13 years, not a single one of his brothers ever thought to go rectify the the huge mistake that they made. But he could have put his life on hold while he wished that it would be different. But that is not what God has called us to do. God has called us to work where we find ourselves. And there's a reason for it. And I want to show you why. How many of you in this room know and love Jeremiah 29, 11? It's a verse that you just absolutely keep around you. And I mean, I see hands all over the room. You love Jeremiah 29, 11, where the Bible tells us, and God says, I know the plans that I have for you. There are plans to prosper you, not to harm you, to give you a hope and a future. I mean, that is a verse that has become a life verse for lots of Christians across the world. But do make sure that when you look at that verse, you look at the context. 
do make sure that when you quote that verse, you think about who God was telling that to. God was telling about his promises to the people of Israel who'd been taken off exile into Babylon. And they were in, they were in a, a place that was uncomfortable for them to be in. Babylon was a, was a place where uh, the true God was not worshipped. And beyond all that, they were pretty much slave labor there. And they were praying and asking God to deliver them from this situation. And yes, God did say, eventually I'm going to deliver you. I know the plans I have for you. But check out what he says before that. He says, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens. Where? Where do you build houses? Where do you plant gardens? In the situation that you're in, in Babylon, in this suboptimal situation. He says, uh, take wives and have sons and daughters. And then take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. He's saying, while you're in the situation that you're in, you're going to have grandkids. You're going to be here a while. Multiply there and do not decrease, but check this out, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you. He's like, you need to worry about where you're at right now. Don't worry about where you think you should be. Worry about where you're at right now. He says, uh, and he says, pray the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare, in this situation that you're in, in this suboptimal situation, you will find your welfare. What God is saying is a very simple principle, and I'm going to put it up on the screen, and it's going to feel so simple to you, but you need to let it sit in, because there's, there's a bit of profoundness here, that God is saying, if you improve your situation, your situation improves. So many of us are praying for God to improve our situation, and God is saying, well, why don't you get in there and start working? You're wishing your way out, but why don't you get in there and start working? Because if you improve your situation, your situation improves. This is what Joseph understood. He understood he didn't like Egypt, but if he wanted Egypt to be a better place, then he needed to start working on making Egypt be a better place. He didn't love being in Potiphar's house, but if he wanted Potiphar's house to be a better place, he needed to work on making Potiphar's house a better place. He might not like the room that he was given, the little tiny space to to exist in Potiphar's house, but if he wanted the room to be nice, he's gonna decorate the room. And he was determined that even if, whether he was a a favorite son or he was a slave he was going to be the best there was he's Potiphar's slave he's going to be the best slave Potiphar's ever had because if you improve your situation your situation improves Reagan said a rising tide does what lifts all ships including our own so the second part of the formula is focused on working not wishing what can I do with what I have with the situation that I'm in right now am I as invested as I can be am I doing all that I can now We're almost done, and I'm already in in overtime, and I get that. Just bear with me for a couple more minutes, and we'll be done. I want to talk to you about the most important part of the formula. And as a matter of fact, uh, if you don't get anything else from this message, I really need you to come online, because this last part of the formula that I'm going to introduce to you is the absolute most important. Now, in the scripture, in Genesis 39, the Bible says Joseph found favor in the sight of Potiphar. But Joseph was a person who found favor all the time. He found favor with his father. Now, he didn't have a lot to do with that because of just the, the situation he was born into, but he could have lost that favor, yeah? He could have been a rebellious and difficult kid. But he didn't. He maintained the favor of his father. He, he starts off in a negative trajectory with Potiphar, but somehow he gains Potiphar's favor. Later on, we'll see as he's sent to prison that he gains the favor of the, of the Pharaoh. There was something about Joseph that he continually gravitated toward favor. And this is what I want what, what to sh- share with you. I'm going to skip past some of the end of this text. That the last bit of the formula for flexibility is to fight for favor, not fairness. Look, there are so many people out there fighting for fairness. That's not unusual. And what you will see is that they're spinning their wheels, they're exhausted, and they're not getting happier. That fighting for fairness has made them cranky. It's made them difficult to be around. And it's absolutely absorbed the potential of their life. 
So instead of fighting for fairness, what Joseph teaches us is to fight for favor. Now, let me tell you what favor is. It's very important. Favor is promotion beyond your qualifications because of your potential. Have you ever been skipped past a requirement at work because somebody saw potential in you and they understood that, that the requirement was not nearly as important as the potential that you have and they keep pushing you up the ladder? That is favor. And what Joseph understood is that the God that he served had the capacity to promote him beyond his qualifications because of his potential. So rather than, rather than focusing on fairness, he was focusing on showing that he had potential. He wanted Potiphar to see that he had potential, but more importantly, he wanted God to see that he had potential. He was a man who followed God and who was continually showing that whatever God trusted him with, God could trust him with more. And that was his way of saying, look, God, I'm, my, most, my most important focus in life is your favor. I'm asking for you to promote me beyond my qualifications because of my potential. I'm going to try to show you that I have potential to go somewhere in life. That's how he succeeded in a suboptimal situation. This is what the Apostle Paul says. He says that for, for people that have God's favor, he says, I'm sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor present, uh, things present or things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our, our Lord. He's saying, look, the Lord will be with you. If you have God's favor, the Lord will be with you even in your suboptimal situation. I'm going to show you this last passage and we're going to be done. This is in Joshua 1, 9. It's a familiar passage for a lot of us. He says, have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and don't be dismayed. And the word there, dismayed, in the original language means don't be shattered. Don't be broken. Don't break. In, in, in a sense, God is saying, where did I put my comb? I still, yeah, I've got it over here. In a sense, God is saying, be unbreakable. Well, now that's a pretty tall order. How can God tell us to be unbreakable? Well, look at how he says. He says, be unbreakable. Why? For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. You have the capacity to be flexible. You have the capacity to bend and not break because God is with you. You say, you know what, Jonathan? My job is really tough right now. I know it is, but God is with you. My marriage is really tough right now. I get it. God is with you. It's really tough being a parent right now. Believe me, I understand that parenting is the hardest job you'll ever do in your entire life, but God is with you. You can bend and not break. Work where you're at. Don't wish your way out. And allow God's favor to promote you beyond your qualifications. Show God you have potential and wait for him to elevate you at the right time. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the fact that you've given us the capacity to be flexible. Help us to learn in these four weeks the way that we can lean into that. And that we can experience your favor in our lives. And we'll thank you in advance for all you're going to do. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for coming. We'll see you next week. Once again, thanks for listening. If you live in Wichita, the surrounding area, we'd love for you to engage with us in one of our weekend services. For directions, service times, and information about our incredible kids and student environments, visit us at newspring.org. One more time, newspring.org.